see you in the Lord's house tonight. If you're happy to be here, say amen. amen. Wow. We want to welcome you uh, to our Good Friday service up here on the hill. I think you'll be encouraged tonight. Just a few announcements. Uh, if you have a cell phone, which most of you do, you know what to do with that. Turn it off, put it on vibrate or something. Uh, also, uh, if, if there are any children, there's a few kids here tonight, if any, any of them get uh, too vocal, uh, please take them out and walk around the halls of the church and uh, take care of that. Uh, tonight we're uh, putting the resurrection on trial, and uh, we're going to weigh the evidence for the resurrection, against the resurrection, and we're going to bring in some witnesses uh, from the past, biblical times, and, and today. And you, the audience, you're going to be the jury. Uh, you're going to weigh the evidence, and uh, is the resurrection really for real or not? Okay? So you got the, the kind of the plot. Before we start our program, let's have a word of prayer together, and let's bow our heads, please. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this evening, uh, this whole season that we focus in more than ever on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you'll minister to all of our hearts tonight and uh, give us some more information uh, that will help us to fortify us, to strengthen us, Lord, as we follow you in this world. We pray that you'll just uh, speak to each heart this evening in a special way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You have been summoned for jury duty to determine whether or not Jesus of Nazareth arose from the dead 2,000 years ago, as the Christian church claims. During this trial in which the people are accusing the church of fraud, you will hear the testimony of a number of witnesses. You are instructed not to discuss this testimony or the evidence with one another until the trial has ended. You may be seated. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is here today to charge the Christian church with fraud and misrepresentation. The Christian church teaches that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. The whole basis for this teaching relies on the supposed resurrection of a man some 2,000 years ago. In order to challenge this, the prosecution has assembled five witnesses, all who claim to have seen this risen Jesus or were closely associated with him before his death. In addition to the eyewitnesses, the prosecution will also produce an expert witness who will show how these observations have logical and reasonable explanations other than the resurrection of a dead man. Once you have heard the testimony of these six witnesses, I will have proved that the teachings of this church are nothing more than a clear case of misrepresentation and fraud perpetrated on the public. 
You may proceed. I call the first witness, Simon Peter. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. I do. Please take the stand. Peter, would you explain to the jury what, what your relationship with Jesus was before his death? I was one of his disciples. I was there when Jesus founded the church. And would you tell the court police why you believe that Jesus was resurrected? Well, I, I had it on the best authority in the world. Jesus himself told us that he would die on the cross and return three days later. I was also present in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas when Jesus admitted to the authorities that this was so. Hmm. Now, Jesus told you he was the Son of God and the true Savior of all mankind and would be resurrected from the dead. Mm -hmm. Yet you denied even knowing him in that very courtyard you mentioned. Is that not true? You. Weren't you with him? I don't know what you mean. Yes, I saw you too. This was the man that was with Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man, Jesus. I know for certain you're one of his followers. There's no doubt about it. For the last time, may my soul be damned if I ever spoke to the man, Jesus. Answer the question, please. Yes, I denied him. I was frightened, a coward. I admit that. Now, isn't that rather strange behavior? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the true Savior of all mankind, yet you haven't sufficient courage to stand by him in his hour of need. You must have had very little real faith, sir. I did believe in him, but the hostile crowd surrounded me. I was afraid that if, if anyone knew how closely we associated, the soldiers would arrest me too. And you didn't feel this son of God, this miracle worker, would save you from prosecution? Well, of course. He could, but he... But, but he made no effort to save himself. So you figured, why would he bother to save me? Is that not so? It wasn't like that. He knew he had to die. All right. That's fine, Peter. Let's just move on from the scene of your denial for a moment. Why don't you explain to us what exactly happened after Jesus died? After his death, we were all terribly depressed. We had loved him so much. For three solid years, we spent practically every moment with him, listening to him, learning from him. We gave up our whole lives to be with him. And then he was dead. We were utterly demoralized and lost in grief. We didn't know where to go or what to do, except to hide. 
since the Jewish authorities consider us a dangerous threat. Now, Peter, you'll pardon me if I'm having some difficulty understanding this situation. I assume the we you speak about includes James, John, Thomas, and all the rest, correct? Mm-hmm. Now, you said that you loved and you trusted this man, and that when he spoke, you listened and you learned from him. Now, Jesus told you who he would rise from the dead. Now, if you did indeed listen to him, why would you mourn his death? Yet you not only grieved, you hid like a band of criminals fearing for your own lives. Now, that does not sound like the behavior of men who have faith. Would you believe it if someone told you he would rise from the dead? No matter how much you loved and trusted that someone? I'm not the one testifying today here, Peter. You are. But at this moment, I'm not sure what you're testifying to. The prosecutor will keep such remarks to himself. Sorry, Your Honor. Peter, please go on. We decided to return to Galilee and and try to pick up life where we left off, when the women, the, the two Marys arrived in a state of much excitement to tell us that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. I ran to see, and sure enough, the body was not there. You didn't believe your friends? You had to go run and see for yourself. You know what? It seems you have trouble trusting anyone. The women were hysterical. I couldn't count on getting the story straight. Well, you know, perhaps you're right. Perhaps there was no body in the tomb. Did it ever occur to you that the Jewish authorities might remove the body in order to prevent the tomb from becoming a shrine to a martyr? Jewish law pronounced a curse by God on any man hung on a tree. Jews would have considered themselves defiled had they removed the body. Besides, it wouldn't occur to them that a man so cursed by God could become a martyr to God. And his followers, wouldn't they want the body? For what? As I've already testified, we thought he was dead. We would want to anoint him properly for a burial, not desecrate the tomb. Well, perhaps you're right, Peter. Perhaps no one would remove a dead body from the cross. Jesus didn't hang on the cross anywhere near as as long as most crucified criminals. Is it distinctly possible that Jesus was not dead at all, but had simply passed out from the heat and exposure? I suggest he simply awoke in the coolness of the tomb, and walked out unaided. And I suggest, Mr. Prosecutor, you're either grossly insensitive to man's endurance or ignorant to the Roman treatment of prisoners, or both. Before being hung on a cross, a prisoner was beaten by sadistic Roman guards. Objection! The word sadistic is prejudicial. The jury will disregard the word sadistic, and the witness will adhere to the facts. A prisoner was beaten by trained Roman guards to the extent that he might die before the cross was ever raised. Jesus suffered just such a beating. If you recall, the man was so weakened from pain and loss of blood, he could not even carry his own cross to the site of execution. He had to be assisted. In addition, Roman guards were charged with assuring the death of a prisoner before removing the body from the cross. In fulfilling his duty, one of the guards pierced him in his side. Now, this man suffered hours of interrogation and torture hung on a cross in unbearable heat for six hours, and received a piercing wound from a spear. All of this in addition to a flogging. And you say he simply removed the stone which sealed the tomb and walked out? Well, none of this would be a problem for the Son of God, would it? That's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. Did you see this risen Jesus? Yes. 
And did this ghost tell you anything about heaven or whatever? It wasn't a ghost. He ate with us. We touched him. He even gave us a message. A message? And what was this message? There is forgiveness of sins for all who turn to him. So, I'm to assume that this man is going to forgive me for something I do to someone else. He said once that whatever we do to someone else, we do to him. Because he is in all men. Therefore, he has the right to forgive. (laughs) That's rather presumptuous, I'd say. For a man, yes. For the Son of God, no. Now, did you see this risen Jesus again? Yes, at the lake where I was fishing with my brother, James, Thomas, and uh, a few others. We had caught no fish after a whole night and were just about to give up when uh, this man appeared on the shore. He yelled out to us and told us to cast our net into the, boat on the, uh, into the water on the other side of the boat. We did, and we caught so many fish we could hardly pull in the nets. We recognized Jesus then. After hauling in all these fish, we all ate together and, and we talked. I remember he asked me three times if I loved him. One for each denial, Peter? Yes, one for each denial. Uh, He then instructed me to love and care for others. He gave you instructions? Mm -hmm. Well, if he lived, as you say, why didn't he deliver these messages of love, caring, and forgiveness himself? Hmm. He had to go to be with our Heavenly Father. He provided me and, and all of us with the Holy Spirit. In this way, we became active doers with God working through us, instead of passively letting Him manipulate our lives. It is in doing that we gain the joy of companionship with God. So you speak for Jesus then? No, He he speaks through me. Hmm. I see. And I guess each time you spoke with Jesus, He simply disappeared and vanished? Yes. Hmm. Peter... Let me explain something to you here about the psychology of men. You had been told to expect to see Jesus after he had died. Now, in your grief, you longed desperately to see someone you loved, someone you had longed for and needed. Your mind was exactly suited to induce a vision. A vision not based on fact, but on intense emotional desire. And all the others, they saw this vision too? Sir... You have called me and my brothers men of little faith. You have called us cowards. I tell you, sir, in this and only this, I agree with you. Indeed, we were cowards. Weak men who, without our teacher, were directionless and scared to death. But these same cowards suddenly began to preach openly in this hostile territory. Now, why was that, counselor? Why would we risk death and torture a dozen times a day to carry on some mission based on some sketchy dream? Some of us did meet a horrible death that could have been avoided by a simple denial of faith. We did not shrink from death or persecution. We did not deny Christ. We could not deny Him. And you say our behaviors, for many of us, the rehearsal of previous actions, was the result of some vision conjured up in our distraught minds? I ask you, sir, which of us is imagining things? That will be all, Peter. I call uh, Joseph of Arimathea as my next witness.
Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Please take a seat. Joseph, you are an honored member of the Jewish Supreme Court who sat in on the trial of the said Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Yet, you were the one who removed Jesus' body from the cross. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, considering such an association with these Christians would possibly lead to your removal from the court and to your own persecution and would, according to previous testimony, defile you in the eyes of God, why would you take such a step? I didn't believe that Jesus deserved to die in the first place. And I certainly considered a criminal's burial an injustice. Why didn't you proclaim the innocence of Jesus during the trial when it would have done him some good? I did speak for him. But not very loudly, right? Not enough to draw attention to the fact that you were a follower of this man yourself. Excuse me, counselor, but a lone dissident voice is seldom heard. Oh, really? Tell us then, Joseph. Did you hear Jesus state he would rise from the dead? No. Well, what did you hear him say? He said very little, actually. He never defended himself. His only admission was being the Son of God, and that he was going to sit at the right hand of God. And shall I assume that you believed in his claims? Yes, I believed him then, and I believe him now. Let me get this straight. You believed... You had the Son of God on trial, but you hadn't the strength nor the courage to save him from your colleagues. If I were defending the Son of God, I would expend every last ounce of my energy in a diligent effort to save my client. You really didn't take a strong stand, did you, Joseph? I'm taking a stand now. Oh, by admitting you removed a dead man's body from a cross. Whoo, that takes a lot of courage. But no one else had the nerve to do it. And no one else had access to Pilate, did they? No. I suppose not. Tell me, how did Pilate react to a renowned Jewish Supreme Court member asking to bury the body of the man convicted by that very court? wish to see me, Joseph Arimathea. I do, sir. I've come to ask permission to remove the body of Jesus and to lay him to rest in my family tomb. You? But you are not a known follower of this man. You are a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, are you not? Ah, I think I see. Now that the Jews have killed their enemy, they regret it. I'm not here representing the Jewish community, sir. I've come to make this request only for myself. My good friend Joseph. There's no need to use space in your family tomb. I'm certain you know that the Roman government provides a grave for executed criminals. But, Governor, it is nothing but a pit where bones are left to rot. And you think this Jesus deserves better? Perhaps. Centurion, sir, you guarded the cross of the crucified Jesus. Can you confirm that the man is dead? He is dead, sir. 
As was my duty during the execution, when a man appears to have drawn his last breath, I ascertain it with my spear. Then, Joseph, I see no reason to refuse your request. Remove the body. Take it anywhere you wish and be done with it. I sincerely hope this is the last I hear of this troublesome Jesus. Shall I repeat the question, Joseph? No. No, I'll answer. Pilate expressed surprise when I made the request. I'm sure he did. And did he readily hand over the body? After verifying he was dead, yes. Well, what did you do then? I took the body down and I wrapped it in fine linen cloth. And then I carried him to the tomb. I had the entrance blocked with a large, heavy stone. And later it was ordered sealed so that no one could enter. That's all there is to tell. Could anyone have removed that stone, Joseph? In view of the seal, it would have been a violation in Roman law and subject to punishment. Besides, it would have taken more than one man to remove that stone. And it was guarded by highly trained soldiers who would permit no one near the entrance. Could these guards have been overpowered? Not by whom? The Jews had no need or desire. And as we've seen, the Christians were already running scared. Thank you, Joseph. That will be all. My next witness is Saul of Tarsus. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. You may take the stand. Saul, I suppose if I ask you, you would proclaim loudly for all to hear that you are one of these Christians. I believe in Jesus Christ the Savior of mankind, the Son of God, who died for our sins and arose to give us life everlasting. It is because of this belief and my new life in Christ that I am now called Paul. Well, Saul, may Your I Honor, remind you... I must insist the prosecutor address me by my Christian name, which is Paul. Mr. Prosecutor, the witness has asked to be called Paul. You will address him as such. Well then, Paul, may I remind you that you are on the witness stand today and not in the pulpit? Please answer questions directly. Are you a Christian? As I have said. Okay, Paul. What if I were to tell you to tell you that this entire trial is a sham. And that I would all certainly of you agree to that. Let me finish, please. That this entire trial is a sham. And that all of you who confess to following this rebel Jesus will be convicted of treason and executed immediately. Would you then so proudly proclaim your dedication to the man you call the Son of God? Sir, the fact that I'm threatened with death means nothing. For Christ is with me. 
He who has Christ has eternal life. You know, those are strange words coming from a man who himself sat out, set out just a few years back to destroy these Christians. As a Roman magistrate and Jew, did you not request support from the high priest in an effort to destroy these Christians? You shall be commended for your diligence in trying to rid the empire of these insurgent Christians. Oh, thank you, sir. But I'm not here for praise, but to make a request. Speak then. Some of these synagogue leaders in Damascus have refused to convey the names of suspected Christians because of public pressure. I feel I would have complete cooperation if I could show them a letter, a letter from you, demanding the prosecution of all followers of Jesus. You shall have your letter, along with my wish for your continued success. Come back tomorrow morning. You'll be on your way to Damascus, along with your letter you requested. It seems you have trouble remembering your past, Paul. Maybe this will refresh your memory. Would you tell the jury what this is, please? It is a letter I requested from the high priest asking for persecution of Christians. Yet you now claim to be one of those you once sought to destroy. What changed your mind, Paul? On my way to Damascus. Carrying the letter you hold now, Jesus visited me. He visited you? We were told by an earlier witness that Jesus went to be with his Father in heaven, I presume. How could he visit you? He didn't visit me in flesh and blood. He came in a bright light and spoke to me. The bright light spoke to you, did it? And what did this bright light say? He said, Saul... Saul, why are you persecuting me? I was so scared. My knees shook so badly, I fell to the ground. I asked who spoke to me. He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He then instructed me to go into the city. I see. Paul, I'm going to ask you to step down for now. But there's so much more to say. Yes, yes, I've heard you always have plenty to say. However, that will be all for now. Your Honor, if he would just listen to the whole story. The witness may step down. Christ is in this courtroom, you know. The witness is excused. I call to the stand the Roman officer Petronius. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Yes, sir. Please take the stand.
Petronius, I understand you were with Paul on the road to Damascus on the day in question. Yes, I usually accompanied Saul on his missions. Oh, it's Saul now, is it? Well, you just heard Saul's testimony, correct? I did. Now, I want you to think carefully, Petronius. Did you see an extremely bright light that day? No, I saw no light. Well, did you hear a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I didn't hear a specific voice, but I did hear strange sounds. And the atmosphere was different. I can't explain it exactly, but it made me lightheaded, almost dizzy for a moment. Was there any change in Paul, uh, Saul's behavior? Yes. After we heard the sounds, he covered his head with his hands and he fell to the ground. I heard him ask, who speaks to me? I answered no one, but he didn't seem to hear. After a while, he got up, but he could hardly move and he was completely blind. Um, about what time of day was this? I'd say around noon. Well, it is very hot on the road in Israel around noon, isn't it? Um, hot enough to produce sunstroke, wouldn't you say? Saul wasn't suffering from the sun, if that's what you're getting at. He was used to traveling in the heat of the day. In fact, we all were. Besides, his symptoms were not of those of someone affected by the sun. But didn't Saul suffer from a chronic illness, epilepsy, or some other physical disorder? Couldn't he have had an attack of that old familiar disease brought on by the hot sun? He could have. But again, his symptoms were not like those I had ever seen before. But he could have had an illness, right? Yes. Now, in your opinion... Did he or did he not hear and see voices? Sir, I'm no doctor, but I can't see how Saul's change in attitude and behavior can be attributed to an illness. I don't know what he saw and heard that day, but he certainly acted like a man who saw something that frightened him half to death. That will be all, Petronius. I call Ananias to the witness stand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Please be seated. Ananias. You are a Christian, is that correct? Yes. And you cured Paul of his blindness? No. God cured Paul. I was only the instrument to carry out the cure. Paul had been sick for three days when the Lord told me to go to him and lay my hands on him so that he could see. And you, a Christian, went willingly to visit a man who had been known to persecute Christians. You must have been a very brave man, or a very foolish one. I simply did what the Lord told me to do. When one follows the word of God, he knows no fear. <laughs> Another preacher, huh? Are all you Christians preachers? Well, sure we are, when we get the chance. Well, today is not your chance. Now, you laid your hands on Paul and he could see. What happened after he gained his sight? Paul went almost immediately to the synagogue to tell everyone that Jesus was the Son of God. After that, he dedicated his life to studying and preaching the Word of God to others. 
Now, Ananias, you feared Paul once, and then apparently you trusted him instantly. Is that right? No, sir. I can't say I instantly trusted him. I did the Lord's bidding because, as I said, one obeys God. But I trusted in God and not Paul, who I still considered to be a murderer. Gradually, however, I could see a radical change in him. He simply wasn't the same man. I learned to love him and trust him as a special messenger of God. Thank you, Ananias. That will be all. I would like Mr. W. Lee Wise to take the stand, please. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Certainly, Judge. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Counselor. Mr. Wise, would you state your occupation for the court? I am a historian. And as a historian, I'm sure you have studied the facts regarding the alleged resurrection. I have. Very good. Well, perhaps you would discuss with us today the obvious discrepancies in reports about the various events surrounding Jesus' death and alleged resurrection. For example, there are numerous reports regarding the removal of the stone from in front of the tomb. There are also reports about who actually visited the tomb and who and what they found upon arrival. Now, my question is this. If the story that the body disappearing and then reappearing as, uh, as the risen Christ is true, wouldn't all the reports jibe? Doesn't it sound as, as, as if each person made up a story to suit his or her needs at the time? Let me tell you about an incident that happened in a sociology class I took in college a number of years ago. Mr. Wise, I would like you to answer the question. Judge, what I'm about to relate will answer the question if our impatient prosecutor will give me the chance. The prosecutor will allow the witness to answer in his own way. Professor Compton, I believe that was his name, uh, Yes, yes, it was Compton. He was lecturing on the, the uh, Brown versus Topeka decision on segregation. Uh, or was it... Uh, Judge, must we tolerate this? Mr. Wise, do get on with it. Professor Compton was lecturing... Another instructor entered the classroom, approached the lectern, and announced right in the middle of class that he wished to speak to the professor on a matter of importance to both of them. He asked the professor to step outside. The professor declined the invitation. The two began to argue at, at length and with much enthusiasm when suddenly the instructor shoved the professor. May I demonstrate? Go on. Judge. When suddenly ridiculous. the instructor pushed the professor like this. And then 
The professor shoved the instructor back. Look, go ahead, go on, shove me. Judge. Go ahead, push him. They continued to argue when the instructor hit the professor on the arm. Judge, this is ridiculous. Uh, Judge, I'm just trying to demonstrate so the jury can clearly understand. Mr. Wise, I think we get the picture. Please return to your seat. Well, after the instructor hit the professor, the two agreed to settle matters later, and the instructor stomped out of the room. Are you okay, counselor? Yes, I'm fine. (laughs) After the instructor left the room, the professor said he planned to prosecute, and he asked the class to describe what happened as accurately as possible to assist him with the indictment. You should have heard them. The professor got ten different stories to an incident they had all just witnessed together. No two were alike, counselor. Some students claimed they had been too stunned to observe objectively. Others feared that violence was going to spread throughout the classroom and were thus too nervous to observe. And of course, many students adamantly insisted they had reported truthfully and accurately, even though all the reports differed. Now, I presume that that little anecdote was designed to clear up any confusion the jury might have regarding the risen Jesus. Well, yes, indeed. Well, now, since you answered that question so directly and clearly, I'm going to ask you another. No, I suspect I'm out of my mind. How could one witness claim that Jesus had first appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem? And another claimed that it was in Galilee. The two cities are miles apart. Obviously, the disciples could not be in two places at once. How might we explain that? I don't know that we can. But I have a question for you. (laughs) Judge. I believe I'd like to hear the question. Polybius, the Greek historian, and Livy, the Latin historian, both represent Hannibal in his invasion of Italy, crossing the Alps by two completely different routes. Routes that cannot be harmonized by any stretch of the imagination. Now my question. Did Hannibal invade Italy? I'm enough of a scholar to know that he did. Despite the contradictory reports, even though two historians claim two completely different routes as fact, you still believe Hannibal invaded Italy? There's a discrepancy here, counselor. Why don't you just refuse to acknowledge that Hannibal ever arrived in Italy at all? Let's use some logic. The witness may step down. No more questions? Not unless you have some for me. All right, then. Your Honor, 
I believe that is all I have for today. We... Counselor, it appears we do have another witness who wishes to testify. This is highly irregular, but since I wish this to be a totally fair and unbiased hearing, I'm willing to let this witness take the stand. Then step forward and be sworn in. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. I do. Please be seated. Would you please state your name for the court? My name is Myriad. Now, you are the only witness I have placed on the stand today about whom I know nothing. Would you tell the jury why you wish to testify? Because whether anyone chooses to believe me or listen, I believe it is my duty as a Christian to speak. Myriad, you must forgive me if I sound condescending, but all the witnesses today have either been experts in the field of religion or eyewitnesses to some event directly connected with Jesus of Nazareth. Who or what exactly do you represent? It is not who I represent that is important to this hearing today, but who I am. And who is that? I'm a housewife in suburbia, a school teacher, the coach of a football team, a plumber, a beggar on the streets, a prisoner behind bars. I am all of these and thousands more, and it is for that reason that I am called Myriad. Shall I assume then that you have met this so-called risen Christ? I have met Christ. Oh, very good. Well, perhaps you'll tell us all the details. Spare us nothing in your explanations as we are accustomed to hearing about blinding lights, voices from heaven, and visitations from ghosts. I've seen no blinding lights. I've heard no voices from heaven, and I've seen no ghosts. Well, then you can no doubt testify to seeing this risen Jesus in the flesh as Peter did. No, I've not had the privilege of seeing Christ in the flesh. No? No. Then I do not see what you can possibly lend to the verification of the resurrection. I come to tell you that one will not merely accept the truth of the risen Christ only by hearing a testimony. True belief comes from within the human soul and not from without. Now you say you are Christian, yet you have not seen this risen Christ, you have not witnessed any of His miracles, and now you say that you haven't been converted through the testimony of others. How did you become a believer? I believed when the joy of friendship lifted the despair of loneliness, when the rose tint of sunset colored the slum with hope, and when my spirit soared high above the bombed-up dwelling of my town in Germany. I experienced Christ in my life when I gave away my riches to a beggar on the streets in Italy, when the prison walls no longer confined my soul, and whenever I was able to be lifted from the powers of despair. <laughs> poetic. Very poetic. But how do you expect this jury to accept any of what you say as proof of a living Christ? Sir, I ask you to look at me. You're the investigator. 
So ask questions. How do I, who once was so shy and depressed, suddenly I speak openly to a crowd of strangers? Why am I so joyful when once I was swallowed in the throes of depression? A year ago, I lived for the next shot, the next drink. Why do I now eagerly seek the comfort of people and nature and God instead? Every day for me is an adventure in living. It is no longer a living hell. Can you not see the benefits of rain when a flower blooms? Or the necessity of vitamins on the human body? You don't know how they work, but you believe. There's many things that we cannot see nor explain, but we believe because we see the results. I come to tell you that once I was so sick, I was emotionally and mentally sick. I was sick and near death. But I became well because I received the risen Christ in my heart. Yet you don't believe me. Why? I don't say that we believe your testimony, nor that Jesus has changed your life. After all, none of us questions the existence of Jesus or that he spoke profound words of wisdom that, if studied and accepted, would change a person's life. Sir, I have not always studied. In fact, there were many instances when I couldn't even read. Myriad, you talk in riddles. This jury is in session today to seek an answer to the question, Did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? If he did, he is indeed the Son of God. Since you claim to be a Christian, you must believe the assumption that Jesus did rise from the dead. What proof can you place before this court to support your belief? I have tried to give you that evidence. Oh, yes, I know. Sunsets over Harlem, roses budding after the rain. There are scientific reasons for the phenomena you mentioned. Whether I can explain the effects of vitamins on the body or not is irrelevant, because someone else can. Someone can explain the effects of Christ on the human body, Someone has, but you didn't want to listen. No, you said so yourself that none of us listens to the testimony of Christ. No, I said that one does not accept Christ only by hearing a testimony. However, someone else's story can open the door to our hearts so that Christ can come in. I see. So then you are now saying that if I believe Peter and Paul, then I will also believe in Jesus Christ. Sir, would the men who have testified here today, would they have undergone such radical changes in their personalities only for a mere great prophet who is dead and gone forever? Take the disciples alone. There's Thomas, the great skeptic, suddenly a firm believer in Christ. James and John, jealous brothers, status seekers, but suddenly willing to be guided and led by Peter. How do you rationally and logically explain the changes in the disciples, Paul's, and the thousands upon thousands of men and women since that time who have dramatically altered their lives because they believe that Jesus was the Son of God? I venture to say that there is no other reason than the one proposed, that I, the disciples, and all the others whose lives were changed from within through the Holy Spirit, which was released through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, If the Holy Spirit from within oneself is the only proof of a living Christ, how can you expect this jury to learn the truth of what you say? Sir, Jesus gave those instructions to Peter. One must only ask God for forgiveness of your sins and believe that, in fact, those sins are forgiven. Once you receive that forgiveness, then your heart is open to God's love and comfort. It's at that time that you have Jesus in your heart.
You no longer need to feel guilty or inadequate for your past mistakes. The only way the mind can truly see the truth of the risen Christ is by opening the door to your hearts. Judge, I believe I have proven my case. This last witness has openly admitted that the only proof of a living Christ lies within the heart and soul of each man and woman, which is an intangible that can never be proved. The prosecution rests. At this point, deliberation and judgment must be turned over to the jury. You have heard the testimony. Now you must make a decision. For the living Christ or against him? He is either alive within you or he is not. You must decide.
Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, tonight you've heard many questions answered. You've heard a lot about the what. But there's one question left to be answered, and that is the why. What was his motive? There has to be a motive for what Jesus has done. Why would he do that? Why would God the Son leave heaven and come to this earth and die and rise again? The answer lies in the scripture. It shares with us here. Romans 3.23 says this, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every human alive, we have all sinned. We have all done wrong things in the sight of God. Regardless of how good that I think I can be, God says that my sin has separated me from God. Whether it's just a, a little white lie, as we like to say, or, or a little pride, or a little bit of this, or a little bit of that, anything to the, all the great big things, God says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, he says that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Romans 6.23 shares this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you get what you deserve, a wage, and we all know what a wage is because we want, we want what we deserve when we go to work. And God's telling us here in this verse that whenever, if we get what we deserve from Him, it is death. Eternal separation from Him and a real place called hell the Bible talks about. However, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a free gift. You can't do anything to earn that gift. You just have to open your arms, open your heart and receive God's gift of eternal life. What's the motive of Jesus? The motive of Jesus was to give you eternal life so that you may be passed from death unto eternal life with Him. 1 Peter uh, 2.22 says that Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in Him. No sin. That's why Jesus was the only one that could go to the cross for you. He was the only one that could take your place. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that He was our substitute that we deserve to be on that tree. We deserve to be nailed to that cross. We deserve to be separated from God forever. However, God, who loved you so much, had to satisfy His justice. You see, because God keeps His word. And I'm so thankful that God keeps His word. God follows through on every promise. And those promises in His word is what makes this world stay, stay functioning today. And so when God followed through, God, way back in the Garden of Eden, he told Adam and Eve after they had sinned, he had said that death would be their punishment. And so now today, that punishment is still holds true. But God satisfied the wrath of God. His wrath was satisfied when Jesus went to the cross. And Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. Paul tells us this, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, 5, he says, For our sake he made him, to be, him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus went to the cross, and he paid the price for your sin. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still in your sin, God knew that you would still be sinning. And while your back was turned on Him, God says that He came 
And he demonstrated his love. He didn't just say that he loved you. He proved it. He went to the cross. And while our back was turned on an almighty, holy God, God said, I'm coming and I love you. And I'm going to satisfy the wrath that is due you in the person of Jesus. And Jesus went to that cross and he died on the cross. And he paid for your sin. And as we've talked tonight, the resurrection, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And it's victorious. And we have hope, we have life because of what he has done. But tonight, God wants you to make it personal. He wants you by faith to turn to him. We must change our mindset regarding Christ. The Bible talks about repentance. And this word repentance is is the idea that we were once walking away from God. And now I'm making an about face and I'm walking toward God. I was once walking this way, and I had my mind set about who Jesus was. You know, God wants us to change our mind about who he is. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say that he was just a good man. Others said that he was a great teacher. Others said he was a prophet. And there were some who realized that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, that would take away their sin. And so tonight, God demonstrated his love for us, and he wants us to change our mind. Yes, you are the Messiah. He wants us to change our mind about what he did, that he went to the cross, that he came back to life again, and that he did it for you personally, that you would make this a personal matter tonight. And why did he do this? It was for our salvation. For us to be saved from the punishment of our sin. You know, Jesus rising from the dead. When he came to this earth and he paid the price on on that cross. That was the the greatest day in history for we had our, our sins forgiven. But three days later was incredible. For Jesus rose from the dead. And this was an event that changed the world. It changed all of history. As a matter of fact, up until Jesus came to earth, we record history as B.C., before Christ. And since the life of Jesus, we record it as A.D., in the year of our Lord. Jesus changed the world by rising from the dead. And tonight, he wants to change your world. If you will just open your heart, allow him to come in and make that difference. John 3.16, one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible. Would you read this with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is what God did for you. That was the motive. His love drove him to the cross. His compassion for your soul. Because you need a Savior. I need a Savior. He went to the cross. He was our substitute. Romans 10, verse 13 says this, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved from the punishment of their sin. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And I want you to notice tonight that it doesn't say, whoever is a good person 
will be saved from the punishment of their sin. It doesn't say whoever has no doubts, because I think many people have doubts. It says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say whoever's got this all figured out because not too many not too many have it all figured out. God says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to understand everything about this great God. You have to trust him. Tonight when you walked in, you sat on the chair. And every one of you believed that that chair would hold you up. And thankfully, We've invested enough that it did. You trusted the chair, and the chair held you up. God wants you to have the same faith, a childlike faith, and simply trust that he died on that cross for you and that he came back to life again for you and invite him in. Several years ago, there was a family who came to the church, and they were they were. They were looking at the claims of Christ. They were investigating the claims of who Jesus is. And I'll never forget, we sat in a room down the hall, and we talked about the claims of Jesus. And this person said, I do not understand this all, but I'm ready to trust him. And that day, that person opened their heart, and they, by faith, trusted the God of the universe, that he died on the cross for their sin that he came back to life again. And that began that family's journey of faith. And they began to walk with the Lord. And so tonight, my invitation to you is to open your heart and simply trust him. Invite him into your life tonight and give him a chance. Give him an opportunity to do something in your life. God is calling all of us tonight. Let's bow in prayer tonight. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I would like to give you an opportunity to do just that tonight. To invite Jesus into your heart, into your life. To give him a chance. To give him an opportunity. Let him change your world tonight. And if that's you, you would like to Open your heart to the things of God. You would like to open your heart to Jesus. I'm going to pray a prayer. And I would like to ask you just to quietly pray this prayer to God in your seat. Inwardly, in your spirit, pray it unto the Lord. It's not the words that will save you. It's the attitude of your heart. You're trusting him that he died for you. That he conquered death. Pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus. I know that I'm a sinner. I've done wrong things. If I get what I deserve, I will be separated from you forever. But God, tonight, I trust you as my Savior. Jesus, you died on the cross. You paid for my sin. And three days later, you came back to life. I accept your love and forgiveness. Thank you for this gift of eternal life. With our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight.
I'd like to encourage you. Just spend a few moments. We're going to play a song. And as the song plays, I want you just to, to think about how much God loves you tonight. Thank Him for that gift of eternal life. Thank Him for going to the cross and paying for your sin. He is jealous for me Loves like a hurricane I am tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I'm unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory Realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Redemption by the grace in his eyes, grace. 
people said amen well we want to thank everybody in the program tonight for doing such a great job and they do a great job you know, we, uh, we, uh, we, we thank them for for the dedication and pastor ken what a great clear concise uh, explanation of how you accept jesus as your savior you know i think so many times when Easter, people go to church and they've heard the story time and time again, but they can't put it together. They don't get the last piece. And the last piece is simple faith and trust in Christ. And an invitation by someone else to, to, hey, come on, cross the line, make that decision. Now, if you prayed that prayer tonight to receive Christ, tell somebody about it. You know, maybe somebody invited you to the church tonight. Tell them, hey, I made that decision. And then follow up on it. You know, find a good Bible and start to read it. Begin to see what God has in there for your life and how he can just keep changing it, your life, as you, as you walk with him. Uh, it'll be an exciting journey. I want to invite you to our Easter Sunday morning services up here on the hill, 9.30 and 11. Bring the whole family because there's a place for everyone right up here. We have a great well-staffed nursery, children's program. So when you bring the whole family, there's a place for everyone to go. And uh, there'll be a lot of excitement up on this hill on Sunday morning. We want to invite you to come and, and be a part of it all. We thank you for coming tonight as well. On the way out, there'll be some people out there in the foyer. They're going to give you this book. Look around for them. Uh, it's called The Case for Easter. A journalist investigates the evidence for the resurrection by Lee Strobel. And so this is, a, this is really an interesting book. I think it'll help you understand uh, more thoroughly what we're talking about up here. So take your, take your book home, read it, pass it, then give it on for someone else to read. Okay, thank you. Let's all stand together, please, and be dismissed. Be very, very careful leaving the parking lot and going down the hill. On 88, be careful pulling out. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>